0: Hi, I'm Dr. Jen Vigness-Warren, and this is Deep Cuts, a new show from the University of Chicago Department of Surgery on why diversity, equity, and inclusion matter in the field, and how these topics improve outcomes for our patients' lives. Today, Dr. Lindsay Zhang, Dr. Kinga Skyron oelordegui and Dr. Ross Zeitlin, two surgeons and one radiation oncologist on anal cancer screening. It's not a topic one often discusses with their doctor, but that's changing. You'll hear us talk about who should be screened for anal cancer, the most common type we see, anal squamous cell carcinoma, and what we do to treat it. Part of our conversation also revolved around the discomfort a patient might feel when getting a screening, something we as physicians are aware of and hope to address.
1: A lot of patients don't want someone looking at their butt, you know, they're nervous just for that experience just for that first visit with me they're nervous they don't want to be poked and so one thing that I always tell them is I'm gonna tell you everything that I do before I do it I'm not gonna poke or prod without you knowing if something hurts then we stop but the goal is not to hurt you the goal is to make sure
0: I understand what the problem is so I can help this conversation took place at our trauma and acute care surgery offices Well, good morning everyone. I'm just going to go around and have everyone introduce themselves so everyone knows who we're talking to. Kinga, do you want to go first and introduce yourself?
1: I'm Kinga skaran I'm one of the colorectal staff here at University of Chicago. I'm one of the colorectal surgeons.
2: I'm Lindsay Zhang. I'm one of the general surgery residents here at University of Chicago. I'm a PGY-4 and I am planning to go into colon and rectal surgery.
3: I'm Ross Zeitlin. I'm a radiation oncologist at Cook Radiation Oncology in Chicago, Illinois. One of the disease sites I treat is uh, gastrointestinal malignancies.
0: Lindsay, you want to talk about like the
2: cases that we do and the patients that we see in clinic and in the OR? Yeah, well, first I want to say, I think it's really funny that when we are talking, we have like a totally different tone. And then like <laughs> on the microphone, we're like, welcome to NPR. <laughs> <laughs> but certainly, you know, I think when we talk about this patient population, well, I guess we should back up, right? So we're talking about anal cancer or anal squamous cell cancer. And uh, the reason that we're talking about this is because the literature and our research on this shows that it does disproportionately affect individuals who are at risk for contracting HPV. And so that is something that happens through sexual intercourse. And so um, it does happen more in patients who have HIV and, you know, in the United States, we don't really have guidelines that say this is how you have to screen for it. But we know that there are at risk populations. And it's just because we're talking about, you know, sort of a sexually transmitted disease and we're talking about very difficult issues that sometimes patients don't want to talk about, then, you know, sometimes it gets missed or it gets like, you know, swept under the rug and we don't talk about it a lot. To be honest, even when I'm in colorectal clinic, I don't know if we're often asking our patients that we should be. But in my brain, I and like my memory, especially as like a medical student and as a resident, like I can't even think of situations where I would have I I just don't think I have. It comes from my own discomfort with the topic and like it just seems almost so random to be like, Oh, and how's your constipation? And also who do you have sex with or something like that. Like Mm -hmm. um, you know, so it's not just from the patient side of things. I think doctors sometimes are uncomfortable with the topic.
0: Right. When we were in med school, we learned, you know, when you learn how to take a history, it goes through HPI, you know, your review of systems, and then it goes to sexual history. And we, like, joke, like, oh, like, do you have sex with men, women, or both? And, like, we always used to joke when we were in med school, like, I'm never going to ask a patient that.
1: I literally use that line with every single right. patient that I see. Yeah,
0: <laughs> It's so important. And I think that you're right. Like, providers and patients both are, like, really, really uncomfortable with it. Like, Kinga, you, you're you a colorectal surgeon, so it is central to the care that you give your patients. But like in the primary care setting, I'm wondering if, you know, all doctors ask that. I mean, Ross, do you? So I
3: think like one of the things I was going to say is when you're talking about disparities as it pertains to anal cancer screening, I think there's like a little bit or a lot to unpack here. And these disparities kind of, come from like three different tiers. You have systemic related disparities, you have like medical practitioner related disparities, and then you have those that you can kind of focus on on the patient side of things and kind of identifying disparities at those three levels will kind of explain, you know, why we're at where we're at today. And so Lindsay, you kind of touched on some of the practitioner side of things. You know, there's an immense discomfort in trying to elicit a good thorough sexual history. In the world of radiation oncology, I've done a couple of um, talks to my organization Astro and some other ones about well, how do we screen for this like how do we talk to someone who might be seventy years old coming in for prostate cancer treatment like how do you touch on sexual history and trying to figure out the right questions and how to ask it comfortably that's that's a learned skill um, and it's also it can be difficult to figure out like, well, who are the patients I need to be honing in on? Do I just ask everybody a sexual history or are there specific people that I need to get that from? And so as we kind of focus in on today, like in the world of like anal cancer, I think that that can be very tricky and it can be very tricky to do so in like a comfortable way that's gonna make the patient feel comfortable. So I think that's kind of a nice way to kind of ease into this discussion. So, Mm -hmm. yeah.
1: Yeah, part of that for Ross's point about the patient side of things is that often patients are embarrassed or nervous to bring something like this up to their doctor. And when they start to notice something abnormal about their anus, nine times out of 10, a patient comes to my clinic and says, oh, I have a hemorrhoid problem, because it's something common that they can wrap their head around that they're either thinking this is or they're hoping this is. And so the vast majority of consults I see for hemorrhoids, it perks me up to ask those questions because it's usually not just a hemorrhoid. So that's one thing that I bring to the attention of my patients is to say, not everything is hemorrhoids and I'm really glad you came and told me about this. The things that I often see, especially in high risk groups are things like condylomas or other precancerous lesions. And so then I sort of try to encourage them like, I'm really glad you came. This is really important that we're gonna look at this because not everything is hemorrhoids. So in those particular cases, I start with a really broad history because whether it's men who have sex with men or women who use their anus for sexual intercourse, they're all at risk for this. And so you have to really take a careful history and make sure that you're not missing something there.
3: You know trans men, for example, or trans women who come in, you know that's another population that we want to make sure we don't forget um, because those are patients also who can have receptive anal intercourse. So Mm -hmm. trying to thinking of like the broad spectrum and not um, coming in with that sort of bias, I guess, into the equation is also really important from like a Mm practitioner side of things.
0: Mm -hmm. So Kinga, when they come to your clinic, they already have like a mass or a problem. And sometimes it's, you know, they're coming to you because they have a surgical problem. They need a resection, like a bigger problem than if they had done screening or come in earlier. So where should these patients be going for screening or when when should they begin screening or should they begin screening? Yeah,
1: that's a great question. So as Lindsay mentioned, there aren't great guidelines on when to screen and how often to screen. A general practice that's out there is to do pap smears, just like women get for cervical cancer, and those are often done usually about every two years or so in someone who is having anal intercourse, and in a patient or a person who has HIV or has immunosuppression, that should be more often, so probably about once a year, and that's usually done by their primary care doctor, and so folks who um, might engage in higher-risk sexual behaviors and are taking preventative medicine for HIV, they'll be seeing a practitioner who's pretty used to seeing a high risk group. And so they will do those kinds of screenings with them. So it's usually primary care doctors or a specialist who takes care of patients at risk of HIV.
3: Yeah, I was going to say, I think that what makes it tricky going back to sort of a systemic related issue is that we lack the data. And so we kind of, I think it makes it also challenging for medical practitioners to say, okay, like, who do I need to be screening, and that's where like the problems start to kind of break down, and, and that that's what makes it a little bit tricky. Um, and so, on the patient side, they might be confused as well. Like, am I supposed to do this? Like, if I identify as like a cisgender gay male, like, should I just be getting screened at baseline? And even for me, that's something that actually I don't quite know the answer to. Um, I think that there's sort of a there's an ambiguity there, so that can make it tricky as well when developing these screening campaigns.
2: Definitely. And I was reading this qualitative study where they had like some focus groups to try to understand the barriers to this. And I mean, I think the first theme that came up actually is just a lack of knowledge about the fact that HPV can even affect the anus, that you can even get this cancer from HPV. I feel like there's some commercials that the Gardasil vaccine commercials, they talk about it a little bit, but nobody actually in that commercial actually talks about anus cancer or anal squamous cell so I just think that there's sort of that lack of knowledge sometimes Mm -hmm. certainly there's that barrier Um, and then the stigma which we've talked about already and certainly in our community like in this qualitative study they were saying that there's probably even more barriers in predominantly African-American communities because you know are you going to go to a clinic and and see like somebody from your neighborhood there and have to explain like why you're there or Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it can be tough
0: right I feel like I didn't even know until i came to medical school that hpv can cause anal cancer and head and neck cancer because it's just talked about causing cervical cancer and even the hpv vaccine i think for a while was only recommended for for young women teenage women and and even that is really stigmatized right to like be a parent and like say okay i'm going to have my child vaccinated right she's 12 years old like she can possibly be having sex but, um, you know, like it's, it's stigmatized in a weird way, but you know, you're, that's the recommendation, right? And the, and the vaccine I think isn't recommended when you're above age 25.
3: And it, that's a really good point. I think that there's like this stigma associated with the Gardasil vaccine that it's going to somehow promote quote unquote promiscuity. And there's like fear in, I think in parents related to that concept. And so it, doesn't get delivered like it should be, even though like in Australia, like the rates of dysplasia, like cervical dysplasia, for example, are plummeting, which I think in 10 or 20 years we'll find the rates of cervical cancer will probably plummet. And that will probably also be the case for like oropharyngeal carcinoma and anal squamous cell carcinoma. The other thing is that just recently, I think in the last maybe two years, the FDA just changed the recommendation. And I don't think it's well publicized that now people up to the age of 45 are now eligible for the Gardasil vaccine. And like I know many gay men that have not received it that should have probably received it. Even if up until this point, I hear people say, oh, like I'm sure that I've been exposed to HPV. What's What's the use? Well, you probably weren't exposed to every strain that was covered in that vaccine. So I think that there's um, there's just a lack of information out there about Gardasil and I think that there's stigma associated with Gardasil that's preventing people from getting it, which ultimately has its domino effect and this is kind of why we see it, what we're seeing in the world of anal cancer today. So it's like, how do we, you know, screening is really important, prevention is incredibly important. We have this amazing tool that could eradicate an entire cancer, several cancers. It's just, we just, aren't distributing for many reasons, so.
0: Right. It can be worrying to find an unexpected bump in one's anus. In the next part of our conversation, we began discussing what diagnosing and treating anal cancer looks like. So
1: if someone comes to me and they have a bump that's maybe suspicious, or a condyloma, which is an anal wart and it can be a precancerous change before someone gets an anal cancer. The next step that I would take with them is what's called an anal exam under anesthesia. So we have them get a little bit of anesthesia so they're sleepy, like for colonoscopy. Um, so they don't feel pain from a biopsy in the area. And then I remove any of those bumps or precancerous changes. And we send those off to be looked at under the microscope and the pathologist um, Tells us a few days later, do they see any precancerous changes or maybe even a cancer? Um, And if they see a cancer, then the next step is to take some pictures. Um, So we do usually a CT scan, maybe something called an MRI, which both take pictures of the area to see how big is the cancer, how far has it grown. And then we have a conversation between the patient and me, the surgeon, and then doctors like Ross who treat the cancer in a different way with radiation and some chemotherapy. So maybe I'll pass the baton to Ross to talk about what the treatment is like and the yeah. likelihood of cure.
3: So in general for anal squamous cell carcinoma, um, with an exception to a few very very early stage patients the general schema is a combination of chemotherapy and radiation as um, Kinga had said the two essentially work synergistically so they work together to reduce the risk of the cancer coming back so this Really is not a surgically managed um, disease it 's only surgically managed in the setting of recurrence so if it has come back in the pelvis later on down the line that 's when we talk about surgery to remove the area that it has come back in it which typically involves the anal sphincter complex. So the idea behind doing chemo and radiation is to preserve the anus, and that 's a very, very big quality of life goal that we all have because the morbidity of removing that can kind of be pretty profound, not just physically, but also emotionally and psychologically for any patient. But in terms of its outcomes in the future, outcomes are pretty good. The vast majority of people will have this disease eradicated and will be disease-free. I think, though, that for our patient populations that we more often than not see, one of the things that at least radiation oncologists don't do the greatest job as a whole in counseling is counseling about the sexual quality of life sequelae that come from chemo and radiation, primarily the radiation component. So I think that that's something that we as a profession can do better at. But I think that overall, it's still very curable. It's just patients lives change from this and it's it's something that I always say it's better to prevent rather than to have to treat if it's possible
2: right i feel like one of the reasons that we are focused on this topic is because when people don't want to talk about it or they push it to the back of their minds they present at later stages of in cancer and if we can do more prevention and screening you know once it's squamous cell cancer that's obviously and we're talking about chemo and radiation but there's kind of this spectrum before it becomes cancer that colorectal surgeons see a lot that can be treated with just occasional trips to the operating room or just screening. And then, you know, you can find it really early stages. It's possible with the pap smears that we were talking about, which is really just like a cotton swab. And so I think our goal is to keep people from getting to the point where they're needing chemo and radiation and having that change. And even though ultimately we've we've got some great treatments and people can have great quality of life afterwards it's just different like you were saying Ross so um, hopefully we can you know start to address some of these stigmas and even within ourselves as providers right to start talking about it more educating our patients and not being so concerned about you know it's awkward obviously to talk about it but it's our responsibility as the providers to bridge that gap so lindsay mentioned those precancerous
1: changes that i as a surgeon can treat and very often those are seen by the patient as anal warts. And so they're often hiding in the anal wart. And so I encourage any patient who has a little bump to come see me. um, If they have anal warts or that precancerous change, which we call AIN or anal intraepithelial neoplasia, we remove it. And those biopsies I mentioned before, they completely get rid of it. And in patients whose immune system is normal, meaning they don't have HIV, the likelihood of it coming back after it's been ablated is really, really low. If someone has HIV or their immune system is low, there is a pretty high chance that it will keep coming back. And so for those patients, it's really important when they see a new bump or a new unusual area to come see me right away, because if I can remove it and burn it away, I can keep it from turning into a cancer.
0: Is there anything um, that our department or the university is doing to sort of improve screening um, for our patient population or things that we could be doing or things that we think about when we care for these patients?
3: So I know that at Stroger, we have um, what's called the, the core center, um, which is probably one of the oldest and um, the largest departments that focuses on HIV slash AIDS management. And so they have a large group of patients and they have a very long history of treating different aspects of, of HIV. I know that I can't speak for them, but one of the things I think that comes up in in their practice is screening for anal cancer um, in some form or another. And so you know I don't I think that one of the things that we need to do is sort of increase in urban and in non-urban settings this sort of campaign for anal c- cancer screening. And I think that's the challenge also. Like how do you tap into communities that have difficulty accessing care, um, where time is almost a luxury, right? So if you have three jobs, you don't have time to seek your own health care, you don't have the money to be able to do so, or you don't get the health care benefits. How do you tap into those uh, patient populations in those communities? And I think that we almost have to somehow get a little bit more creative, whether we are doing outreach at community centers, things like that, where people might find it easier to be able to um, open the door. And so I think that places like either CORE or um, where I trained at the Medical College of Wisconsin, they had their own, just had an anal dysplasia clinic. These centers that have these sort of more established care for patient populations who are immunocompromised or immunosuppressed, I think we can look towards them. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I think at our hospital in particular, I know a lot of my patients go to the core center and get their HIV care or their prevention care there. Here at our hospital, I think that's largely run by the infectious diseases group who treat HIV. And so if patients are interested in prevention, I think they are often the the group that will treat that. And so they're the group that does a lot of the screening as well because they're so attuned to the risk in that population. So I think the best thing we can do is, like what we're doing today, just get the word out that if you are someone who might be at risk for anal cancer, please get the screenings. Please come and talk to your primary doctor. They're often the ones who will start that process or help you to find the right place for you, whether it's the core or infectious diseases.
3: And, you know, depending on insurance status, if people don't have insurance, for example, like, well, where can they go? There's other resources out there um, for sexual and gender minority individuals. You can tap into the Howard Brown system, which is an awesome resource. And they are so good at figuring out kind of, well, how can we help you based on, you know, your background. And um, they have many, many offices out there. And they do these types of screenings. And so these are just, that's just one example of um, a nice institution that can really help people, depending on, you know, where they're coming from, location wise, what type of background they have. Um, Yeah.
2: But you know, I think it's it's an interesting question. It's a hard question, right? How do we, as medical providers, you know, from this this institution where we're, you know, we, we have, we're all privileged here in this room, right? We come, we have good education, we understand, like, um, the nuances of the healthcare system. So how do we bring that to the communities that we serve? And how do we help spread that information? It's a really hard question to answer. And then the
3: other thing is, like, how do you maintain people in these sort of screening programs, right? Because once they enter, people may not always come back. One of the things that I've personally um, found challenging with some of the patient population that I work with at Cook County Hospital is that sometimes it can be really challenging for patients to come back for for many many reasons. You know, many of my patients come from over an hour away; they don't have transportation to get to us. There's a lot of other barriers in that. In their way, in in coming, getting their care, getting follow up care is just so important. So, you know, perhaps a patient has a lesion that's identified early on, it's dealt with, but now we still have to maintain, and they have to come back because what if it comes back again? As Kingo was saying, um, we have room for improvement in that arena as well. You know, maintaining our patient um, population within the our within our healthcare systems.
0: I also think that building trust within the community and The relationship you have with your patient, I think, affects that, right? Like, if you have a really good relationship with your doctor and you trust them, you're going to disclose these things to them. You're going to feel comfortable coming back. If the doctor doesn't make you feel comfortable or you're embarrassed, they're not going to come back. And I know from being on our colorectal service that the attendings, Kinga and and Ben and Dr. Hyman, I can't call him Neil. (laughs) I can't do it. I can't call him Neil. Dr. Hyman. I think they're great. I mean, they're all really warm people and they make their patients feel incredibly comfortable. They talk about these things like this is just a regular thing that we talk about and it's fine. And I think they do a really good job making their patients feel comfortable. I wouldn't even I wouldn't go so far as that they're friends, but some of the patients I see oh, Neil, in clinic Neil or would ER. Say <laughs> Neil would say they were friends, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I see them in the clinic or I see them in the ER and they're like, Oh, Ben's gonna be so disappointed. Like I Dr. Shogan's gonna be so disappointed. I didn't take care of this I missed my appointment you know they're almost like they feel bad that they've let their doctor down they're so close with them and I think that our doctors here do a really good job making them feel comfortable um you know tell your friends your your family members they have problems they can come here right like I think Kenga probably sees a lot of like family members or relatives or friends of her patients because they have such a good relationship that they want their good friends to come here and I think that's sort of the network that we're trying to build here at University of Chicago, because we want people to feel comfortable. And, and we're working on that. Um, We don't have a bunch of old school doctors here that don't know the nuances like Kinga's up to speed on everything. And, and I think that's really what we have to offer here.
1: Yeah, I think one barrier that you just made me think of is that a lot of patients don't want someone looking at their butt. You know, they're nervous just for that experience, just for that first visit with me. They're nervous. They don't, want to be poked and so one thing that i always tell them is i'm going to tell you everything that i do before i do it i'm not going to poke or prod without you knowing if something hurts then we stop and then we can always do that procedure that i mentioned where we have you go to sleep so it's not uncomfortable but the goal is not to hurt you the goal is to make sure i
0: understand what the problem is so i can help right right I think, um, we see I don't know what how many butts do you see in one clinic you probably you probably do like thirty anal exams on a Friday, and but for each one of those patients, it's like you know this deal. is the first time someone who's not friends with me or related to me or whatever has you know seen my butt like that's that's crazy, you know it's hard for them, and you know I think you do a really good job making them feel comfortable and It is hard. And we need to remember that. And I think um, we get that you're vulnerable. We get that this is hard. But you know, it is nothing will shock us anymore. And so we just want to help. And we may make missteps, we are still learning, we may do things wrong, but we all just mean well, and we just want to take care of you.
3: And as we kind of like, as doctors, approaching patients you know we have to do things sensitively but also we're going to make mistakes when we say something that we didn't mean to say and I think that how we maneuver through that mistake is also really important in being able to still maintain rapport with patients. I've talked to other people who have used the non-preferred pronoun, and that has caused tension in the physician-patient relationship. And how you maneuver through that and um, continue onward, that that's a really important thing as well, in especially in this population that we're talking about. Um,
2: We actually talked about that when we were making this podcast because we thought, you know, we're probably going to say the wrong thing at one point in this because part of this podcast is about just having the discussion and learning and people come from different levels of their understanding or their acceptance of that. But I think we decided that the conversation is more important than our personal insecurities about having these conversations.
3: (laughs) Yeah, and I think it's like for me at least it's okay to say – the wrong this or the wrong that it's all about how oh how will I patch that up and like learn and change you know moving forward right if I say the wrong term, you know why is it important i've heard I've actually got this question before why does it matter you know why why are we being so picky on terms and things like that because like the patients that we're dealing with are patients that have been mislabeled or discriminated against um kind of cast away by society so i think it's so important to use the right terms but sometimes the wrong thing is going to slip and that's okay and like people are very forgiving if they see that people are trying like if you're a physician listening like you are going to say the wrong thing and that's okay it's just how you maneuver through that scenario that i think is really important that's what i always try to tell people like you know oh i'm so sorry correct it and then just move on you know don't dwell dwelling is never a good thing um <laughs> but yeah and
0: the more you do it the more comfortable you get exactly
3: right? it's like practice like you just have to practice like even i get like I sometimes get nervous about, oh, am I going to say the wrong thing or am I going to use the wrong term and, you know, is it going to be disrespectful and am I going to cause some form of distress in some person? But it's like, I need to get over that. I just need to talk like a human being and it eventually will smooth itself out.
0: Dr. Kinga Scowron Olordegui is an assistant professor of surgery at UChicago Medicine, specializing in colon and rectal surgery. She's a specialist in the use of minimally invasive surgery techniques, including laparoscopy and robotic surgery. Dr. Olordegui is also an expert in the treatment of inflammatory bowel disease, as well as colon, rectal, and anal cancer. Dr. Lindsay Zhang is a fourth-year general surgery resident at UChicago Medicine, and a clinical scholar at the American College of Surgeons. She has published on a variety of topics, including the postoperative health of older adults, bullying in medical training, and the experience of being an Asian American physician during the COVID-19 pandemic. Fun fact, she also helped create the name of our podcast. Dr. Ross Zeitlin is a radiation oncologist for Cook Radiation Oncology. Dr. Zeitlin's academic interests include gynecology malignancies and oncology health disparities in sexual and gender minorities. He is also an advocate for sexual and gender minority inclusion within the field of radiation oncology. The CDC recommends everyone through age 26 get the HPV vaccine, as well as for certain adults age 27 through 45. As always, we recommend you talk to your primary care provider for more information. If you have questions or topics you'd like to hear us discuss, reach us at zoom-colo-gen at bsd.uchicago.edu. That's colo, C-O-L-O, and gen, G-E-N. Deep Cuts comes to you from the Department of Surgery at the University of Chicago, which is located on Ojibwe, Ottawa, and Pottawatomie land. Our senior producer is Tony Liu. Our intro song is Love Money Part 2 and comes to you from Chicago's own San Morimoto off of Super Records. A special thanks this week to Christian Olordegui and a happy holidays to all of our listeners. Find more about our work at surgery.uchicago.edu.